listening to Mind the Shift, a podcast about shifting minds in a shifting world. I am Anders Bolling. Welcome. We have talked about money several times on the podcast, the point of money, and what kind of money system benefits us the most. But money is, after all, just uh, uh, only a means to an end. And the end is reasonably that we all want to create uh, things and uh, services um, and, and live interesting and good lives together. So how can we build a society that focuses more on the end rather than on the means? Welcome to the show, Esther Barinaga. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Anders. <laughs> you are uh, an economist, a professor at Lund University in southern Sweden. Mm-hmm. You came to Sweden uh, and the Stockholm School of Economics in 1998 from, from Spain. Yes. You ended up studying what was going on in uh, Shista, a, a Stockholm suburb, which was at the time famous for being one of the, the big information technology clusters of the world. I don't think it is that anymore, but anyway, that's, at the time it was, like the, was that. And you did an et- ethnographic study there. Can you tell us a little bit what you, what you found and what took you further from, from that starting point? So, um, yes. So after completing my PhD at the Stockholm School of Economics, I got uh, funded to do some sort of postdoc project on Shista. And what it was interesting to understand is the, uh, the network society, as the term was, uh, was at the time, the network society from within. So how people organize their lives, how the, 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 the access to global knowledge through this internet uh, affected community life and all that stuff. And, and what I saw was that, so I went to Shista to, under, to understand it as an anthropologist. You go there, you see how businesses take decisions and what they do. You see how people living in the area live their lives and what they do and whatnot. And what I saw is um, it was a divided society, if you want. It was the, the backyard of the, of, of the haves and have nots of such a society. So I saw people that were entrepreneurs starting up organizations and building the technologies of the future today. Uh, and they commuted to Shista. They left their kids and their grandparents to take the underground and go to uh, travel the 20 kilometers up north of Stockholm and go to Shista. And they spent, they had very long working hours. Yeah, they, they were there till, till 9, 10 in the afternoon. Those people living there, which you typically had non-Swedish surnames and typically had, were born elsewhere than Sweden, they, they were not, uh, if they worked in the area, they worked in the service care sector. So cleaning the offices of the high tech or having the restaurants open till late at night and whatnot. Or they commuted to the city center to take care of the kids of the people that worked that, worked that late and so on. So what I saw is that both sides were necessary, mm-hmm. have long working hours, but, but um, they were not accessed and they, had, and they had different conditions and different power positions in that new society in the making. So I got interested from that time on, I got interested on on the dynamics, economic, technology, and social dynamics that divide our cities, the haves and have-nots. And in Shista, it was very obvious that that division ran along ethnic lines. Yeah. So I got interested. Because Shista is also known as one of the suburbs where there are most people from from born outside of Europe, most heavily... uh, yeah. one of the largest immigration uh, immigrant populations that we have in, in the Stockholm area. So which yes. is a bit interesting that this was the same place where this information technology cluster was. So it was yeah. basically segregation that you saw and experienced. Yeah, yeah. And I understood the very dynamics. The, I mean, the, the information society, the network society that promised to bring us together and to build yeah, a yeah. more fair and equal society, the internet was actually the reason why we were perpetuating division. So I was very interested in in those dynamics um, that that perpetuated division despite the promises of unity. But but, but how could it perpetuate division? In what way would you mean? It's kind of ironic when you... (laughs) Well, you need a, you need a large uh, body of um, workers that um, that take care of those jobs that are not sexy and not a status field. 
And those, because of ethnic divisions that already are pre-existing in, in society, those, uh, those that get access to the nice jobs are not those that, uh, um, you know, have, typically have Swedish surnames or English maybe surnames, mm -hmm. but not uh, Indian or Pakistani or um, Northern African or surnames. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's not that the, the information society created that particular division, it's just that it cemented and perpetuated divisions that were already existing. So we needed other programs and we needed other tools to bridge those divisions because the internet or those those uh, IT companies were not providing them. Mm. That was I don't know if I'm clear there. Yeah, well, it's, it's, I understand what you're saying, but and and it's really interesting. But on the other hand, the the, the internet itself isn't like that. But the companies that created the internet uh, solutions were, of course, big companies where people earned a lot of money and, and as you say, perpetuated for perhaps the, the division. But I mean, the internet itself, ironically, is supposed to connect people. Absolutely. And actually you had, thank you for the question. You had examples like um, they thought in the, in the IT side, they thought of the residential side, if you want to call them those ways, as, uh, as half-nots. And they hadn't realized that, you know, these people had contact, they were migrants from Somalia with family members in the US, in the UK, in, 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 all, in many, many other countries. Mm -hmm. They were really, and they had meetings with their family members and friends and whatnot in all of these countries through the internet. They had contacts with them, but, they, but the IT side never thought about them as global citizens. No. They thought about them as people from the suburbs with the negative connotation that that word has in Sweden, the million program on lower debt. Yeah, yeah. That kind of ghetto-like connotation that it has in Sweden. Um, and so they, they, the recruitment process of those people were, um, they, they, they faced a stigma mm. that other people that are seen from the beginning as international because they speak English, yeah. like Swedes typically do, wouldn't face these these uh, residents spoke English and their home language and Swedish, but they were they faced that stigma of not being global citizens or, or not to the same extent as so ones where the expat the same word describes the same kind of profile expats and immigrants yeah but in everybody's minds an expat is positively loaded whereas an mm. immigrant is very negatively loaded. And sure, when we sure. meet a person that personifies one label or the other, we also change our attitudes and our recruitment processes or what happens in the room differs. Do you think this was common in, at, during that time in many of these big cities like Silicon Valley, where they had these information clusters, information technology clusters, the internet clusters that they didn't see the people working on the ground with 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 basic services as as a, a pot potential customers or potential people they could work with i mean it seems to me like these guys running these companies were missing an opportunity here because as you say these people living there in shista in this case they were from africa and asia and south america and they could have been uh, very good examples of people using the internet to connect all over the world and to i mean they could experiment with these people they could employ yeah. these people yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when you come well, to think and, of it and what, yeah yeah and what you say i mean i had the opportunity to go to silicon valley um to for a year and a half to do research from stanford and what we saw what i had seen in shista the, the haves and have nots, the inclusion and exclusion dynamics, I saw in Silicon Valley as well. You had, okay. it, it, it took a different form, a different shape because the state or California is organized very differently and there's not a welfare state as developed as we have in Sweden and all that stuff. But, but they have Palo Alto, which was rich and wealthy, and they had East Palo Alto where the police didn't even dare to get into. So they, they, these items in, in a, uh, in the IT cluster in India, it happened the same thing. You have the, the ins and the outs, mm. or the, those that Bangalore, are visible. What's, what's the city which... In Bangalore. Was, was Bangalore, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yes, so to your question. So, yes, it's not unique for Shista or for Sweden. It, these are dynamics. This inclusion and exclusion dynamics happen, um, in, or happened at least, in, in other IT regions of the world. Mm, mm. Yes. 
And these studies, this research in Shista led you to, uh, to move more and more over to studying, as far as I understand, uh, different types of grassroots initiatives. Yes. Uh, like social entrepreneurship, as it's called, and, and how to achieve more. One term here is more inclusive cities. Can you explain, uh, elaborate a little bit on that? What, what do you mean by more inclusive cities? <laughs> That's a very good question. <laughs> well, you... You can read about it in, in, in your papers. So. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so um, after studying that, I realized, well, we know about this. There are other regions. There's other researchers that have studied these uh, segregation mechanisms. Um, I, I may write about it and whatnot, but this is not. It's not enough. We need to actually build also as, as researchers work with building bridges. And, um, and uh, I... I change the focus of my research to actually look at start looking at initiatives strategies methods to build more inclusive cities and what i mean with inclusive cities is cities where residents whatever their name or surname whatever their income level feel that they have a voice feel that they are included in in decision making processes feel that they can participate to the extent that they want into making the neighborhood or into deciding how the city it develops and whatnot. Um, when I had been doing ethnographic research in Shista, many of the people I spoke with felt that they were not from there. Kids that had been born in Sweden uh, of migrant parents, but in, born in Sweden felt that they were from nowhere. If they had gone to Swedish school their whole lives, they had uh, lived in Sweden their whole life, they spoke Swedish as their mother tongue, they barely spoke may maybe the their parents' language, and yet they didn't feel, feel belonging to this society. Mm. And, I, I, and that is very problematic. Um, so building an inclusive city is not about everybody having, you know, as much opportunity or what. It depends on your level of education, but it, it means everybody feeling that they are, um, that their voices are heard and that they mm. have a, a, a place where they can participate and, and mm. contribute mm. to the city. That gives you a sense of uh, belonging and a sense of, of, of worth in society, I guess. Yes. Is that is that worth? Yes. And maybe everyone can understand that, as you say, depending on the level of education or, or whatever the level of intellectual capacity, you can accept that you know you can't have just any job, but but you ha can have a job, and you can you can have uh, you, you can be uh, you have to be accepted and and respected as a citizen of that. Exactly, where, and have a dignified life uh, where you feel have a dignified life. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, you have studied these kinds of initiatives, and there are several types of initiatives, uh, grassroots initiatives, uh, bottom-up, so to speak. Um, you, the last few years here, you've studied, you've done research into alternative money systems, and that was what I was talking about at the beginning of this episode here, the money, money systems, which is, I think, yeah. really interesting. But it, it all goes together, but money is kind of the the glue that holds the financial system and the, the economic system together. So so these uh, alternative, as you have studied, alternative money systems, they come in, as far as I understand, two forms. The globalized cryptocurrencies, which many people know about in the form of Bitcoin, I think is the most famous one, but there are others also. And then local so-called community currencies, and both aim to change the way that money is designed and created. Yes. So what, what do the global and local alternatives have in common and, and what not? Oui. Yeah. <laughs> Good question. In well, common, just... <laughs> yeah, in common, they have that they see problems in our current monetary system and that they, and I'm very super generalizing, okay, uh, that they want to build a, a system that is not the current one, that they want to rethink the current system. Now, they, there is a lot more than distinguish them that, that they share, in fact. Uh, community currencies are typically local. Their goal is to build community resilience. Um, they integrate their economic thinking with the social dynamics, is really embedded in the, I mean, the, the production of money is really embedded in the community. And, and the nature of that community. The cryptocurrencies 
instead of aiming at community resilience and being local, they most often want to build a standardized public infrastructure for the global world. So their aim is not local, it's global. They're, because of that, instead of trying to adapt and design the monetary system uh, adapting to the community, to the characteristics of the community, like the first one, these ones try to design an economic system that is standardized for the whole world. And so it cannot adapt to the particular needs of each community. Uh, and because of that, uh, it's, they don't embed the production of money in the communities that use that money. Mm-hmm. So they, they, what distinguishes them is, is far more, I think, mm-hmm than what they share. But they both challenge the existing system. Yes, they do. So what's the the main problem with the current money system? That's also a big question. (laughs) Can you pinpoint that? I could. Two or three things that it's it's bad because of this, you know, it's... Yes. (laughs) So I have, it's going to be a longish answer though, but I'll try to... Sure, I have time. Okay. So at the moment we have, um, in most countries, and particularly in the countries that uh, you and I have experience of, um, we have one country, one currency. In Europe, even worse, we have 19 countries, uh, one currency. Uh, but, um, and that is problematic. We have monocurrency systems. And that is problematic for two reasons. Um, one is that money, uh, fulfills several, or a currency, fulfills several functions. One of them is, it is to, uh, it's a unit of account. It is the way we measure va- economic value, right? That's okay. But there are two other functions that are very important and that they require contradictory behaviors from us. And fulfilling them with one single currency is very problematic. So one function is, it is to serve as a medium of exchange. So that you and I can trade and I buy my rice for dinner and the grocery owner use that money to buy something else. And, right? and the, for that function to perform well, we need money circulating. Right? If I don't spend my money, we see that with the crisis. If I don't spend my money, uh, the business owner, and, and if you don't spend your money, the business owner is going to go bankrupt. Mm-hmm. And the economy is what's happening with the pandemic. People are saving, or what happened after the financial collapse of 2008 in mm-hmm. my home country in Spain. People were saving in the cafetito. They didn't know if they were going to keep their jobs, be able to keep their jobs. So they saved in the small luxuries of life, in the small cafe that you take in the mid morning at, at 11 noon in Spain, in the small tapas that you take. And only during the first year of the crisis, over uh, 5,000 small businesses went bankrupt in Madrid alone. Mm. So you need money to circulate. The third function is that money serves as a store of value Mm -hmm. because we put value in it itself. We save it and we save it for the future to pay for our children's education or to buy that house that we've dreamt of or whatever, we save it. For that function to work well, it requires from us to be willing to hoard it, not to spend it, to keep it. That is to take it out of circulation. So it's a contradiction there. So it's a contradiction there. And we're fulfilling both functions with with the same currency. This works relatively well in economic booms when there's a lot of money and there's a lot of money circulating. And despite the fact that people may be saving, there's still a lot circulating. But as soon as there is a crisis, boom, you get this contradiction to the top and people save to, for the future, if they can save, if they're in a position to be able to save. And so a lot of people, uh, businesses go bankrupt and people have a hard time in eating, having, you know, putting a meal on the table. So yeah. that's one problem, that we have a monocurrency system. Um, yeah, that fulfills contradictory functions. Um, the, the other one is that uh, now less, I mean, during the pandemic, uh, this is a bit less, but in regular times, um, most of our monetary mass mm. is created by private banks or commercial banks giving loans to households mm. or businesses. Mm. 
So the moment you enter, you enter a bank office and ask for a loan for a million Swedish crowns or euros mm. to, to buy a house, mm. it's not that the bank looks whether they have that money or not, it's that they type they it. They yeah. created that very moment. Out of thin air. <laughs> out of, exactly, out of thin air. And there, yeah, are, yeah. there are lots of articles about this. The Bank of England has mm. written about this. So even established actors, and the IMF has written about this, even mm. established actors are actually acknowledging this. Mm. This comes with a lot of problems. One, because money, banks give those loans to those that they assess credit worthy, right? Yeah, so yeah. already there, we are creating or we are reinforcing inequality. Who the bank deems credit worthy is often someone that already has collateral and already has a, a history. Yeah. The other is that it is their profit motive that guides the create bank's profit motive that guides the creation of money, right? And if banks don't have any good expectations about how the economy is going to develop they stop giving credit. And mm -hmm. so accessing money for, which is a, is a infrastructure for the economy, gets uh, shrinks and, and gets problematic. This happened mm -hmm. after the financial crisis of 2008. Um, another thing is that it is created with interest. So you go to the bank, you ask for a 1 billion, 1 million <laughs> Swedish crowns for your house and uh, they create it but you have to pay back that 1 million plus interest. The interest they haven't created, right? So for you to be able to pay that, you have to take it from somewhere, somebody else. Mm. And by definition, because they've, you, we have to pay back more than it has been created, somebody else is not gonna be able to pay. Mm. So it's tying people. I know, yeah. It's, it's really fascinating that, uh, that it works this way. And it's really, I think many people who don't reflect a lot about uh, over the money system, they think that it's, it's tied to some kind of, uh, some kind of uh, concrete value somewhere, some, somehow, but it isn't really. I mean, no. maybe it was during the times when we had the gold standard. Yes which yeah. was abandoned uh, with the Bretton Woods system or even... In 71, the 15th of August of 71. Okay, 71, Nixon, Nixon decided to, to, yeah, just yes. to, exactly, to, uh, the, the, last, the last bits of the gold standard yes. disappeared. So yeah. after that, it's just, a, it's just a creation of something in thin air. Yeah. And it's, it's actually a belief system. Do, do you agree with that? Yeah, I, I agree with that. We, 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 depend, we depend very much on how the banks think the economy mm. is going to develop yeah, and, and how the bank assesses those that are credit worthy or not and how the bank assesses what sector of the economy is worth investing in. So the, yeah. the housing bubble that we saw in my home country was extreme in the years of the uh, previous to the 2008. So the years from 2002, mostly, or three to, to six, seven, mm. the, the, the sector that the banks believed in was housing. Mm. And they yeah. have, I mean, that, and they tilted the economic growth towards that sector. I That's know, where I they know. gave their loans. The crash in Spain came actually two months before, before, um, uh, what's the name of the bank that crashed in New York? Lehman Brothers. Lehman Brothers, yeah. The crash in Spain came in July, it was a big construction company that, that went bust. Oh. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> I remember that. So, so Spain had its own. Uh, yeah, it's pre-pre-crisis pre before the big crisis. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and we see we see that the the power of the bank the power of the banks had that time to to shape or to guide economic development of the country. We see that now. You take a car ride from Madrid. You land in Madrid. You take a car ride to the north of Spain, and along the road you see heaps of skele house skeletons. We call them yeah, in Spain. Yeah that they mm -hmm. were never built. They've mm -hmm. destroyed the landscape. They've blown up mountains even to build these house skeletons. Oh, terrible. Uh, it's terrible, but that, that's how much power they have. They've shaped mm. the landscape. So this means that it's a belief system and it's, it's very dependent on people actually buying into the system and this matrix of, of, of money, the money system, money created by central banks and by private banks. And so if you, can, if you can imagine that a large 
portion of the population, perhaps not even the majority, but a large portion of the population stops believing in this system. And let's say, for instance, there's a, there's a crisis a, a crash, like the financial crisis, crisis of 2009 and 10, and the euro crisis. And, and suddenly, a lot of people stop uh, believing that there is a crisis. They think, okay, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna continue to create anyway. We're going to continue with our services and, and creating stuff and building stuff and doing things. We don't care about what the government says about crisis. Then the crisis would subdue, wouldn't it? I mean, it would... It, no, I don't think it's so easy. No, it's, <laughs> I, maybe it's, I'm simplifying things enormously here, but it's a little bit of a... Parts, parts of this seems to be a mindset I mean, well, it's anyway, it leads us to your, to your research on, on these uh, community currencies, because those people are trying to create something that goes beyond this uh, official system. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. No, no but, but it is absolutely. So there is a, a way of thinking about money that it dominates and yeah. that doesn't allow us to see these things that we've been talking about. Uh, for instance, and that doesn't allow us to see that maybe we can create money. The technology is there um, as, a, as, a, as a social technology to organize communities. It's been existing for many, many hundreds of years. Um, so we need to start rethinking uh, ourselves in relationship to money in that sense. Yeah. Um, and yeah, maybe I should go. So in the, after the after the collapse of uh, 2008, after the financial crisis of 2008, what you had uh, in many countries, not only in Spain that was particularly badly heated, but in Germany, that is a wealthier economy, in Switzerland, in the UK, in many countries, you had groups of citizens coming together and saying, look, we may have a crisis, but I still uh, know how to paint houses. I still have a, you know, I, I may be unemployed, but I, I can still do these things mm -hmm. and you still need, have the same needs. So we may not have money to uh, a, a conventional money to trade among ourselves, but let's create our currency to trade among ourselves and continue our life as we did before. And uh, it was an explosion of complementary or community currencies, if you all through the Western world, in the US, in Canada, here, uh, in, in, yeah, in France, in Italy, in Germany, mm -hmm. everywhere. And this phenomenon typically happens. It's not new for this particular crisis. It typically happens after the crisis. It happened in the 30s with the Great Recession, oh, with, the great, yeah, mm -hmm. with the Great Depression. It happened there. And we have some lessons from the currencies there that were recorded by some of the big economists of the time, like Irwin Fisher. Uh, we have the longest uh, ever standing complement, uh, community currency was created in, in, 37, in 1937. It's still used today in Switzerland, which oh. is seen as a wealthy country. What's it called? The VIR, W-I-R, oh. the VIR. Oh, okay. And it's a business-to-business -business currency in Switzerland that is used up to 25% of uh, the small and medium businesses in the, in the country. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, no, no. But uh, yeah, many economies have studied, or some economies have studied that particular currency. And what, what they see is that that when there are crises, and so there is less uh, or, or harder access to conventional money, to the Swiss franc, this, this current, these businesses resort to their VIR, to the complementary currency. And when the economy is going well and there's a lot of Swiss francs circulating, then they use their VIR less. And so what the, the complementary currency is doing is that it's softening the crisis hmm. in a way that, and allowing businesses to, to endure and to actually do well throughout the crisis, they, they, to stabilize the economy. That's what they do. So it sounds like central banks and governments could actually learn from these uh, community currencies. Uh, or could they? Or maybe they could, they should rethink the this very stiff and strict system that is in place now. Yeah, yeah. Make I think we should rethink the, the the culture or the ideology or the paradigm of having a mono currency system. Hmm. Um, because as 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 um, as many of these currencies are showing, is that relying on a, a multi currency system and other currencies gives access to money, 
to why there uh, when there is not uh, to, to other kinds of money when there is no access to conventional money and so it it softens down the crisis and it it, it stabilizes the economy mm-hmm. it's, it's like um, if you only have rice in your in your kitchen for food the day there is a rice uh, problems with the rice provision of rice you will go hungry but if you have rice and pasta and potatoes well there is problem with rice you'll eat potatoes mm-hmm. you know you have several it's the same there is problem yeah. with the swedish with the euro well we'll use the common or the other mm. the local currency mm. yeah. yeah well people have been doing that with with traditional money for 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 a long time of course uh, hoarding uh, saving uh, especially in countries with with weaker economies like the former east bloc people in russia they have been keeping dollars and people in africa have been keeping dollars but then if all the currency all the main currencies are in crisis at the same time then then it's not that easy that easy yeah but it seems as if the euro and the dollar are actually keeping their value their strength even through crises these days yeah. even uh, even strengthening because like Sweden has its own currency and we could see that it was weakening during times of crisis here, although the Swedish economy wasn't going badly, but it was just the psychological thing that the Mm. Euro was an anchor. So it was considered more safe to, I, Anyway, that's yeah, a, it's a sidebar, but um. but you have let's let's go back to the euro because this is a very uh, it it highlights in streams what happens with other conventional national currencies. Another problem is exactly that um, uh, that because it's a, a single currency for many many regions that economically are very different. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Germany is more industrial and Sweden are more industrialized. Uh, uh, Spain mm, relies on a, on a, on the tourist sector and less industrialized. And when the the circulation of money of of the euro tends, and this happens with all conventional currencies, tends to go to the central economic hubs. You know, because you need to buy machinery that is more expensive than the money the tourists leave in Spain, for instance. And so the money goes from the peripheries, if you want, to the core. Mm. So with one single currency, you cannot serve the needs of the regions that have different economic fabrics than the center, Mm. right? So if you have a multi-currency system, you'll have currency issuers in a region, and so they could adapt in, in say, in Sevilla or in the, in the, the in Portugal, or in, where they could adapt the issuance of the currency to the needs, the particular needs of that economy at that moment. Mm-hmm. Issuance and taxing, mm-hmm. um, yeah. the monetary policies and the fiscal policies too. Yes, if you want. Well, I can, yeah. I can. Myself, I've I've been very sympathetic towards the euro because I'm I'm all for integration. So I mean, as an idea, I think it's very sympathetic and and interesting and good. I mean, gen- integration in general in Europe and the whole world. So I've I've been thinking also that wouldn't it be good if if the whole world used the same currency because then we wouldn't have this problem with some currencies strengthening and other weakening and people going busted. You know. But then you have the problem with, so who's going to control it? It's, it's going to be a big central control, big, huge central bank over the, hovering over the whole thing, which is not very sympathetic. But uh, <laughs> I mean, the, other, the other end of the scale would be to have a multitude of local currencies, as you are researching into right now. Mm. So what do, you, what do you think if you, if, well, let's take it from there. Do you think that it would be a good idea maybe to, to widen the scope of these local currencies to be actually go in a way going back to what it, how it used to be having hundreds and hundreds maybe thousands of local currencies all over the world which would mm. smooth mm. The, the yeah so so let me let me be clear um, i'm not against the euro okay i do think we need one currency mm-hmm. i'm against mm-hmm. the mono currency system we could have the euro, so we need different. It's a hierarchies of money. We need a currency that is for trans, you know, transnational uh, trade. Uh, we could have them uh, national currencies, and then we could have regional currencies. One for SCOA, and say, or even one for Malmo, because the economy in Malmo is very, very different to the economy in Lund. Um, mm-hmm. 
So it, it is not against the euro or a, a, a global currency as the one you are uh, you mentioned. Keynes mentioned also, you know, and Bretton Woods, he actually proposed the Bancor as one global currency. Mm-hmm. But also having currencies at other levels. So we, okay. we would be having, you, you would be using uh, several currencies on your everyday. Um, that, that's what I would be... Uh, yeah, Rick, Advo- you're advocating that. Yeah, well, that's I get I, I get it now. I understand what you mean. It's kind of a hierarchy of of currencies, and yeah. the, the local ones are used for for certain ends, and and the global ones, if there is a global one, yeah. it's used for, the, for for the most global trade uh, purpose. Yeah, yeah. And, and all that. So I then can you give can you have a example. globalized and a localized economy at the same exactly. time. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yes, give me an example. I can give an example that may help us think about this. Um, why then, if you have a global currency, why then a, a local one? And I'll give, mm-hmm. give you an example that I, uh, I give, I, I almost give always when I talk about this. And it's, it's, it comes from uh, Lisbon. Mm-hmm. In 2017, I, I meet Filippo, who is the, the director of a particular district in Lisbon. And the districts in Lisbon take care, are responsible for the collection and sorting of waste. Okay. This is 17. Uh, there's been a very strong austerity measures. He has yeah. seen his budget shrink. He has very little money to actually promote more of this. And he sees that his district is filthy. Residents are not uh, sorting and are not taking, you know, they're putting all the waste together. And, but he doesn't have really a lot of money to do this. He's done a, a little marketing campaign when, you know, sort your ways, bring it here. It doesn't matter. Nobody does anything. So he comes across this idea of actually issuing his own currency for the district. He issues the liso. Liso means waste in, um, in Portuguese. Mm-hmm. He issues the liso. And what he does is he says, look, as residents in this district, if you bring to the collection sorting points, uh, waste collection points, if you bring, um, now I can't remember exactly the prices, but say you bring one kilo of organic waste sorted, you'll get 10 lisos. If you bring two kilos of glass, sorted glass, you'll get uh, 20 lisos. If you get, right, you get paid for bringing, for sorting your waste at home and bringing it sorted to the collection points that were all over the district, the square, whatnot. As a resident, you receive these leases, and then you can spend them in the associated um, businesses. Mm-hmm. And because of the logic and the mentality of this particular currency, is businesses that employ or or pro- provide themselves locally. So they they buy the tomatoes from the local farmer. They do the the, the flour from the local uh, flour maker. All that stuff. So you buy, you can buy and with the lisos in the local uh, businesses. The local businesses can use the lisos to trade among themselves. So the cafe owner would bring, would buy flour from the local, you know, flour maker. And, and, and this is the beauty, they are allowed, they, they can pay their local taxes uh-huh. in lisos. Oh, really? So they, so, Filippo, so it's, convert, it's convertible to? It's to, not convertible. Uh, no. no, no, it's not convertible. You can pay your local taxes, which means that businesses want to accept leases in payment for their goods because they can use it themselves to pay their local taxes, mm. right? Within three months, the district is clean. You have residents sorting the waste. Not only that, you have people from larger Lisbon and from outside Lisbon going to the district to sort their waste and earn the leases and spend locally. Impressive. It is. So in, in that sense, that monetary system, very local, has created an inf- a local infrastructure that attends the need of that particular district. Mm. You see? It has also, the Filippo created its own budget. He didn't have any budget. He created it, and now it, ha- it works. That currency works as an incentive system, if you want, or as an infrastructure to organize waste collection and sorting in the district. Mm. So it's a, it's, a, it's a tool for organizing economic circles yeah and as you said before it seems as these these kinds of solutions can smooth the ups and downs of 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 the economy so that you not as uh, 
dependent on these uh, centralized benefit systems that that can can be create problems sometimes which cost a lot of tax payers money of course uh social benefits and things like that i mean it, you you might not be able to to get rid of the system's social benefits but it could if it could smoothen out things a little bit so that people because people really don't want to be dependent on benefits they they want to work they want to create things they want to do things like, as you said if, if you're good at doing this or that you want to do that even if you're unemployed because you still have the skills so that would be very nice. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, unempl- I mean, most people are unemployed not because they want, but because there's nobody that wants to pay for mm. their services. Mm. So I'm, I'm, I'm not against. Um, I'm uh, at the moment looking into a currency in South Korea, in, mm-hmm. in the Gyeonggi region, that has been created. Now that you mention uh, unemployment benefits or social welfare, actually, it's being created to uh, to provide for a universal basic income kind of. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's been a lot of experiments like that in. And in and in that sense, so in your comment, you seem to look at taxes as the way to fund. So, so you first collect taxes, and then you fund the social welfare programs or whatever it is. Well, that's the centralized system that we are used to, isn't it? Yeah, but no, it doesn't quite work that way, actually. Okay. If you if you are a currency user, yes. But if you have, like, look at Filippo. If you, mm. he first spent, he first spent the lisos into circulation to pay for this. And then he collected them, the taxes. So the taxing comes after the spending, mm. not before. So the same with the Gyeonggi region. You, they spend it through payment of universal basic income. Like it's not exactly, but that kind of, and then they tax it. So it's, it's, it's and when, when, when someone has the authority to issue its own currency, when you are a currency issuer, budget doesn't need to be your constraint, it's not your constraint. You can spend, you can create money by spending it into circulation and then you tax it to, to, to bring it back if you want, to retrieve it from the system so that there is not too much money circulating. Because if there is too much money circulating, there is the risk of inflation and all that stuff. So you first spend and then you retrieve. You tax. Okay. okay. <laughs> have these these people, these initiators of, of community currencies, have they run into problems with government authorities at some instances? So uh, that's a very good. Um, so I've studied some historical examples. Yeah. And I'm studying a lot of current examples. In the historical example, and I am one, and the reason why I mentioned that is I think that uh, reactions from government hinge a lot on the dominant, on the atmosphere of the mm-hmm. time. So in the 30s, there was a blooming of community currencies. And one of them was particularly successful. It was a study, you know, it was in Austria in the city of Wurgel. There were economists from France going to study it from the States, Irving Fisher, the renowned economist went to study it. You know, it was was so successful at at creating an economic boom in the midst of the great recession that it's Mm. actually been called the miracle of, at the time it was even called the miracle of world. They Mm. managed to build the train station, the railways, tracks, um, provide for this, you know, take care of the surrounding forest, uh, build a drainage system of the city. There was really an economic boom. But the experiment, if you want to call it that way, lasted only 13, 14 months because this is the 30s and we, we had an authoritarian... We know what, we know what happened. <laughs> exactly. So the Central Bank of Austria decided that that was, you know, that they were, um, they were going against uh, the monarch currency or, or the only, against the Austrian central bank, if you want. And that was only the central bank that had the authority to create money and that that was against the law. And they, he threatened the mayor, it was the mayor that created the currency okay. to, uh, with Yale. And so he had to stop the experiment. As soon as the experiment stopped, Wurgel went back into recession. Today, we've seen the same thing happen in Kenya. There's a particular uh, currency that I've been studying and uh, it happened in 2015, uh, I think it was, 
1415, I think it was, they also issued a currency, the national, a, a newspaper wrote about it as a secessionist effort or attempt from this informal slump that was using the currency and the, and the creators were put to jail in three or four days till, mm. you know. um, but we're seeing, I mean, in Spain, there are over 40 currencies and nobody's in jail. 40, four zero? Four zero. You have mayors creating currencies and nobody's in jail. You have many currencies in France. And, you know, there is a, the European, the, the EU actually funded uh, in 2015 and 16, uh, the, the making of a, if you look at it, it's actually a manual for nonprofit organizations and civic, civil, civil society organizations to create their own currencies. And it's funded by the European Union. That's interesting. So there's a tolerance now mm. for initiatives that come from the bottom up mm. on this. Mm. It's also a big legal vacuum. There's really no, so we don't know what happens if these initiatives become serious and much more uh, encompassing. We don't really know what would happen. Okay. But uh, so far there is a, a tolerance for these initiatives. It's kind of exciting. I mean, that must be for a researcher like you who is fascinating. We're studying this. <laughs> Talking about that, do you see a change in the attitudes among people around the world now concerning these things? I mean, I know you've been studying so many other social kinds of social entrepreneurship as well. This, I guess you could call this a social entrepreneur uh, yes. initiative. Yes, it is. Entrepreneurial initiative, uh, creating a currency, but there are so many other things going on. And uh, Grassroots is a very kind of strange uh, term. It's a very diffuse term, but I think most people uh, realize what it means. It can mean, I mean, doesn't say anything about income level or so. It's more like people who are not in charge, who are not in the government or in authorities, exactly. but exactly. who are creating things by the, themselves. Uh, do you, when, I, when I read about your, uh, I look at your presentation on the university. Now you have to correct me if I'm wrong here, but when I look at your presentation and the website there and also your pre-interview answers it seems to me you have you have a somewhat gloomy worldview or maybe i'm wrong but you, you can you just <laughs> because you talk about apocalyptic environmental damage rising inequality precarity increasingly polarized societies and multiple crises <laughs> so it seems like what is this is this the 30s or the medieval times <laughs> but but you hear, I mean, I can hear you, you, you have come across so much, so many interesting, positive uh, initiatives. So how do you see what's happening in the world? What's boiling out there? What's, uh, you know, simmering around, yeah. around people? I, are, I, you a, are you an optimist or a pessimist? I think it depends on the day, really. But it's, yeah. really, yeah. it's really as you I understand you. It's yeah. really as you're describing it. Sometimes I think we, we are heading the wrong way. So if, if you look exactly at this crisis, I mean, the climate crisis is going to be, is, 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 is the problem in the coming 20 years and is an existential problem. So if you look at that, you're looking at the pandemic now, how it's being solved. You look at uh, how bad our global leaders are to organize any solution in common then I get really gloomy. But then if I look... Well, well maybe we people... should get rid of the, the leaders then. <laughs> maybe. Sorry. Maybe. No, I agree. I don't know. I don't know. But if I look at the people, there are mm. so many initiatives. There, are mm. so, there is so much knowledge. There, there, the, the solutions are here. There are, there's a lot of energy from mm. city gardens to local currencies to neighbors that help each other to do their groceries now when they're under lockdown. To, there's a lot of energy. And that's when I get positive. And mm -hmm. I'm lucky enough to be studying those with the energy. <laughs> yes, because I was, I was going to suggest that maybe what, you, what, what I just uh, cited here, quoted, could be a mindset and, and in, in in that case you're not the only one because it's very very common influenced by you know the narrative by uh, um, in politics and the media uh, i've been a journalist for 25 25 years so i know how the media works okay. it's all about drama conflict black and white and it's much much easier to write a headline about something negative than something positive you know you know that so that's yeah. how the media works uh so i mean you could also see it like this like you actually just mentioned, but I have, I have 
I propose that you could see the world uh, as it is now in this way as well. We have a humankind with better knowledge than ever about the world, yeah. about the universe and about ourselves. We have a more well-informed people than ever. We have greater awareness about problems than ever, which is perhaps the reason for the widespread pessimism because we know we can see the problems, That's which true. we didn't do 50 years ago. And we have right. global communication that has led to the first ever possible integration of all of humanity. I'm not saying that we are integrated, by, but we have the possibility for the first time. There's less poverty. I know you can debate about that, but I mean, looking at the numbers and we have a wise and engaged youth, not least in Africa, Asia and the former East Bloc. So yeah. would you agree that this is also a way of describing the world right now? I would totally agree. I would totally agree. And they, they, they have, they are not just sitting at cafes and, or, and drinking beer and complaining about the world. They are doing it. They're they are doing, they are it, doing yeah. it. They are organizing their small communities to run a, a currency or to, to provide, you know, they're taking over in Spain. I see this a lot in many cities. They're taking over abandoned uh, houses or abandoned uh, terrains, uh, okay. land, and start to grow food and distribute to the neighbors that have less access to food or product. They, they are they're coming together to provide for a community. They are developing what in research we call the commons, they are developing structures to 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 organize from the bottom up. Uh, I know you've, you mentioned Eleanor Ostrom, also the, yes. the Nobel Prize winner, who she has been studying these these commons initiatives. Yes. As we're talking yeah. About. yeah, yeah. So I, I yes, so I agree with you. I, that mm. We have that. So in that sense, sometimes I feel that we are at a key point in history where yeah. we could go either way depending mm -hmm. on, on who we elect, depending on how much, how well we organize ourselves from the bottom up. And, and yeah, maybe we should focus less on the, the election thing, which is a good, I mean, I, 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 I think democracy is a wonderful thing, but as you say, we elect leaders and we elect new leaders and we elect new leaders. How good are they actually at solving the problems that we see? Mm, maybe we should perhaps organize society a little bit differently, horizontally perhaps, and anything is possible, I guess. So, I think uh, it is. But, yeah, but we've, I, been, we've been living under, you know, top-down rule for so many years, for thousands of years. So it's very difficult to get out of that mindset. It's difficult to see that it could be organized differently. But, but I guess it could. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I think we could. We need both. Actually, I think we need a bottom-up, and that's the, that's what has been uh, less um, developed, or, or actually, the market mechanism has eaten up the commons. Uh, you know, we have privatized the land, we have privatized money, because it is private banks making money. So we've privatized the money, we've privatized larger and larger spheres of the economy, and so destroy the commons. So this, for me, these bottom-up initiatives are organizing back the commons and taking, uh, and we need that. But I also think we need a top-down. We need a government that like now, the pandemic is very obvious that in moments of sudden crisis can organize effectively for the development of new or the distribution of vaccines for uh, printing money or this, you know, so that it reaches to the needy now. Uh, so I think we need both. We, we, we cannot live with just top down and we cannot live just with bottom up. I think we need both. And we've been too poor on the bottom up. <laughs> Yes, I agree. Uh, maybe we don't need the, we, we need maybe the administ the very skillful administrators and the inspirers, but maybe not the leaders with big L, you know, those are how the ones that we can. And how would you do? Up. I mean, democracy might be, has its problems, but it's the best thing we have. Yeah, but I mean, I think it's hard to compare maybe, but these countries that, the, the country that we're in now, Sweden and the, the other Nordics are, I think have come pretty close to a situation where the, the government and the, the ministers and the leaders aren't big leaders with big L's that who are, who are acting more or less like ordinary people, but they are happen to be in charge of things. And so I think that's, that's okay. I, I, that's better than, you know, whom I'm referring to, you know, Donald yes. Trump or Vladimir Putin yeah. or yeah. whatever, you know, these big, big men and big women in some instances, uh, we might not, need those people because uh, we are actually capable of uh, 
of uh, dealing with our own problems ourselves to a large extent. But then yeah. we need, as you say, when we have global problems or national problems, we need we need some kind of administration that can handle these, yeah. or, or handle it on that level. Yeah. Yeah. So I know what I think. I think I understand what you're saying. So what you're saying is we don't need leaders that are uh, voted on or that sell themselves as charismatic. And we don't need these huge personalities. We need a system top down or that that works, <laughs> that mm -hmm. actually puts the. Then it's actually not top down. Oh, sorry, I'm, I shouldn't. Uh, yeah, but, but, but that puts the needs of the people center stage and not their own personal needs center stage. I mean, exactly. that I, th I think I, I agree with you. I'm lucky enough to live, be living in Sweden and uh, I have experience from other countries. And I, I, I am pretty happy with how it works so far. Well, there are things and issues that we criticize, but here people don't vote on a charisma. Or no. my friends, at least the people I know around my, it's not, they, we don't vote on charisma. They vote on what measures they want for the economy, what uh, priorities are they putting for the country. What, there is a discussion, I compare the discussion with my friends here in Sweden with the discussion with my friends in Spain. Mm -hmm. They are totally different. Mm -hmm. Over there, they discuss personality traits. Mm -hmm. You're still stuck in that, in that. Here, we, we discuss political programs. It's very, very yeah, More or less, well, people also focus, of course, on the party leaders, but not as much as in other countries. Not, not as much another, as in other countries. Another, no, another country actually came to mind here, Switzerland. You mentioned Switzerland before. I mean, who knows who is the, who is the president or the prime minister of Switzerland? Nobody knows. Nobody ever hears of them. I think that's even closer to the situation that you, you really didn't need here. Yeah. An administration that deals with things that are national, but which isn't so much top down then if it's actually that even that national administration isn't really top down it is almost bottom up or at least it's horizontal it's yeah, just I mean, organized in a way that I it's, see, it's I, see where you mean. I mean if, if a democracy is well functioning there should be a very a, a fluid communication top up right which, exactly. what are the which are the needs of the people where are they in their everyday lives yeah. and what, what are their priorities and yeah. if that so in that sense is what you're saying so if the if the if the communication top down bottom up works the top down should also work right yeah 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 it's and it's i mean i i don't have any <laughs> any ready answers and uh, yeah. but it's really yeah. fascinating to see what's going to happen now because you you mentioned all these initiatives that you see in your research and i can see to the extent that I follow the news, follow the news, I do it a lot less now because I I, I feel more sane when I don't listen to the news twenty four seven. But anyway, I can see that there are protests and demonstrations on the streets in many many countries, different countries like France and Hong Kong and Chile and Argentina, parts of Sub Saharan Africa and Russia. It's simmering out there. It's 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 things are happening. It, yeah. Sometimes it's not very pleasant, but sometimes it's really tranquil and and. Yeah. Uh, you know, so it's 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 happening a lot of things out there. <laughs> it is, it is the reaction. So an interesting it, time. It is an interesting time, and maybe maybe people are starting to react because they are, because we're reaching an extreme. The inequality mm -hmm. we haven't had this these levels of inequality since uh, since the thirties, and we know where the thirties ended. Mm -hmm. um, people are in in in, a, in more and more people are feeling that the climate crisis is existential. So more and more people are reacting. But inequality, I think, is a big economic inequality and the precarity of labor is a big reason why people are mobilizing. Because mm -hmm. if you cannot feed your children, you're going to do whatever. <laughs> and so, yeah. So, uh, yes. So, yes, I agree. There is the, I th I, it, it feels like more and more people are mobilizing around the world and are protesting and uh, um, but I think it is because we've also getting a, a, to a point where it, it is just unsustainable. Hmm. To be continued. Esther Barinaga, <laughs> <laughs> it's been uh, an education and it's been a, a joy talking to you. Many thanks for joining the show. And I'm looking forward to hearing more about your research, uh, exciting research on the attempts to create a, a more bottom-up system. Thank you, Anders, for inviting me. It's been a pleasure meeting you. Thank you.